The RCR shop has great gift ideas. From great looking tees, hoodies, caps, tote bags, bumper stickers and more. The RCR shop is now open at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash shop. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Friday morning is always the morning for our political panel here at RCR. Last week's panel, well, that was an experience, but here we are again. I want to welcome uh, for the first time uh, to our panel, but a guest on this program this week, Matt Robson, former Associate Foreign Minister, Minister of Disarmament. There's a whole list of ministries that uh, he kind of was uh, steering away at um, the time of Helen Clark Barrister into um, that sort of work now. And Matt, welcome to our panel. Thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. It was like a former life I was describing there, really, wasn't it? Uh, some of it. Some of it. Certainly a big big part of it and a challenging part. Yeah. Cam Slater is with us. Hi, Cam. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Good. Fresh from the crunch yesterday evening, early evening. And Olivia Pearson. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Paul. Nice to have everybody here. Um, what's it like, Matt, you know, being out of the game for this period of time, but sort of looking at what's happening? Uh, how, do, how, how do you cope with that? <laughs> well, you cope by doing what you can and you only can deal with whatever situation you're in at any particular time. Um, often, if you've been in politics where you've had a say in how things play out, um, and but often it's not as big as politicians think their particular contribution to a lot of forces at, at work in it like you will see that uh, whenever the economy is has got a boom everybody claims credit for it uh when it's down they put it on to somebody else often there are things obviously beyond people's control but from now as more as an observer um I sometimes could uh, like to be there and have a counter view, which it uh, is taken up at that particular time. But on the other hand, um, it's also a time to spend more time thinking about issues uh, when you're involved in day-to-day -day politics. And I think everybody in uh, parliamentary politics finds that. Uh, it, despite your best intentions, um, things are happening so fast, there's often not as much time to step back and have a think about a uh, position that you're taking or others are taking. So it's got its benefits as well. What were, And quickly, your impressions of of um, more contemporary politicians, comparing it with your day and, and even before that, you know, our experience yeah. of that. Well, I don't have a high regard, actually, um, of many uh, politicians. Neither do I. Neither do I, Matt. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Whether they characterise themselves as uh, left or right or, or, or centre. They're all the same. Well, I don't say they're all the same, but I think the, the problem that I find, this is what I find, is doing any thinking beyond what's handed to them, some yeah. officials or what's popular. Um, and yet we have a world which is actually much easier, despite the, the flow of information which we complain about or people complain about, um, individuals can actually do far more individual research, checking, mm. looking up things. And politicians, uh, when they approach an issue, what happens in the parliament is that the great majority, and I feel sorry for them actually, because I mean, in a smaller party, you've got a chance to actually look at issues and debate without being sent as fodder, voting fodder into the chamber. But if you look at the National and Labour with big, the, their members of parliament get very frustrated. They have talking points, they're told what to say, 
and you just get the feeling that uh, big issues come up. They've got a <clears throat> responsibility, and I do not think, and I give the example of uh, the approach to the war in the Ukraine, I never saw any uh, evidence of any individual thought and research. No matter what position it came down with, I like to see, well, what's your evidence? What have you been searching? What have you been reading? What is your gap in your knowledge? I don't see that. Would you, why... ha would you have asked those questions in your time in that situation? If they're coming to you, you'd be saying, well, what's this this based on? Yes. You're not answering this question. I understand this, but you're telling me that. Would you have... Yes, Being I can like tell that. you that I never gave a speech that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs gave me. I threw it away. It was just nonsense. Start off with, uh, we wish to um, congratulate the last speaker who was some dictator somewhere or autocrat or brutal person. Um, and then, you know, they give you what you're supposed to say. And never, hardly ever, uh, did I get anything which said, well, look, this is a complicated position <laughs> there's a number of viewpoints yeah. so i'll just give that as one example um but i noticed, yes, I, in your, I, I noticed in your interview with paul on was it monday paul with with matt here yeah um you mentioned that uh nobody seems to take uh use the resource of the parliamentary library mm. well um, mps and i wondered how good is the parliamentary library it's very good. It's 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 not only the library itself, uh, which is they get you any book that you want in the world, and you just ring them up. I mean, no, none of us have got that resource. You've got to go pay Amazon or borrow, pinch it from a friend or something, or go to a library. But mm. they get everything. And then researching. So you want something on a particular issue, local, international. They're at your door, and I think I said it to Paul in twenty minutes or less uh, with the material, which because. They're available to you because nobody's much uses them, as far as I could see. I used to go across there. I was, well, maybe I'm a bit of a, a nerd like that. My grandfather said I would hang because I never got outside and did things and was reading all the time. Um, <laughs> but I haven't so far hanged. But um, the library was empty, has all the magazines, has everything. The only thing it lacks is it's not very good on, we're not very good on foreign languages. And I say that, I don't read them all, but it, it's important to start somewhere, getting ideas mm. outside our own sphere, Anglosphere. Olivia, what's been on your mind just in the last week or two? Well, what's been on my mind? Well, there's just been so much happening, of course, all over the world. Um, I think uh, Matt wanted to bring up the um, talk about the article by Patrick Smelly on um, foreign affairs on the uh, the hawkishness that um, Kiwis show a, a bit of hawkishness in an uncertain world. He had an article on, um, you know, New Zealand looking like it's going to go more toward our traditional allies instead of toward China. Would you like to comment on that first before I do, Matt? Okay. Uh, first of all, I, when I read Patrick's uh, article, and I've been with him once in his Timor in his, when the... Um, uh, independence uh, referendum was being held in 1999. And one thing I do know about him is quite brave. I wanted to run away from the points of conflict. He was a true reporter and wanted us to keep going back uh, where the Indonesian army and the, the militia that they um, financed and uh, and trained were, were arming people, killing people. Um, so I'll just, I'll just say that. I, know, I, I thought he was quite a brave person. Mm. Nothing to do with uh, this particular article 
the heading showing hawkishness. My opinion is that uh, New Zealand is as a small country, and I get into trouble because, you know, I'm born in Australia and people still bring that up against me, say that they, they can see why I was Minister of Corrections because I was born in Australia. But it isn't because I've got anything um, against New Zealand, but I think New Zealand's been quite a hawkish country. Um, and the other part of his thing, an uncertain world, when has the world not been uncertain? So I just say that to lead into an article and say, well, now we've got a situation before that it was okay. It was. It wasn't. We didn't need to be hawkish, or we didn't have an uncertain world. Uh, then, then either hasn't lived or hasn't been reading. Because what was the 1962 crisis um, over Cuba? An uncertain world. Mm. What was the war in Vietnam? But an uncertain world. What has been all the conflicts in the in the Middle East for so long? An uncertain world, and so forth. And then when he gets into the article, um, no, this is opinion. Uh, it was good to actually see an article like this. Uh, the tenor of it, in my opinion, was, well, it's about time we stepped up and spent a lot more because we're not, and he quotes Andrew Little, uh, Labor's former defence minister, saying uh, that you know the benign environment, which he attributes to Helen Clark, and it was in the defence document in uh, 2020. Oh, sorry. 2001, she said, a ben we live in an incredibly yeah. benign strategic yeah. environment, which was yeah. completely erroneous at the time. Well, they were saying, now, okay, we've got some point of conflict. We come I disagree with that. I say it was. But I say it's even benign now. I don't. I think it's just a beat-up and nonsense and the attack on China. Nothing to do with any criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, its background, or some of the things it does. But to say that the problem is China being assertive is, in my opinion, completely wrong. I was going to say a stronger word, but there we are. Perhaps that's enough and let the others... Well, I'm quite happy to see New Zealand lean toward our traditional allies. Again, um, that strikes me as a healthy thing, even though they can be unreliable sometimes. When America has good leaders, it's not a problem. Uh, it's when they have terrible ones, as they do now at this moment, that I, I really hold my breath. But, you know, we only need to cast our minds back to the last war and had New Zealand existed on its own without being part of the British Empire's Commonwealth, to say nothing of the alliance with the United States. I doubt we would have stayed intact as an Anglo-Saxon nation. Um, I think it's a bit foolish and perhaps a bit hubristic to think that New Zealand can hold its own without strong allies who share our way of life. Um, I don't want our closest allies or partners to be communists. And there's not enough discussion in this country about the fact that the CCP does run China. And we're not factoring in that communism is not compatible with New Zealand's core values of peace, freedom and prosperity. I mean, China is a severe dictatorship. Um, and I, I think we probably should choose our trading partners extremely carefully, um, especially in times like these, when uh, which are uncertain, deeply uncertain. Um, money and cheap commodities are only one part of human flourishing. Um, so it's nice that we can get cheap things from China. Um, but a very, and I know that um, having cheap commodities is a is an important part. But self reliance would be an ideal, along with trading with free countries, as in our traditional allies, and also democracies like India um, seems like a much better idea in the long run. Mm. Well, I've made a few points, and later on, if I can, if I can. Mr. Well, um, Cam, you got any? Yeah, I, I tend to agree more with uh, Olivia. Some of the comments that Matt makes, uh, 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 you know, I can understand from his worldview and where he's coming from on those. But, you know, um, people, the, 
If we look back over, the, say, the last uh, 15 years or so uh, with foreign policy, we had the National Party prostrating itself before the Chinese, uh, John Key sucking up to, to President Xi as much as he could, uh, you know, uh, they were getting vast sums of money donated to them uh, via CCP-connected people. The Labour Party had the same issue as well. Um, and uh, they're not our friends. China are never going to be our friends. Right? They have a, a plan for what they want to achieve in the next thousand years, and our politicians have a three-year cycle, and it's rather myopic when it comes to the great global plan. Now, I was born in Fiji. I've seen the impact of Chinese money, in, particularly in Suva and in other areas of Fiji where they've poured money in, into infrastructure, into various different things, and the government has beggared itself um, before these Chinese interests, uh, you know, giving them access to a whole lot of things. And, and it's not for the benefit of Fiji, that's for sure. Uh, and, and we've seen in more inroads into the Pacific where they've uh, you know, signed agreements to set up naval bases uh, in the Pacific with with small, um, you know, Im- impecunious countries uh, that welcome the the Chinese money that comes in. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure that that we truly recognise the strategic impact of letting China into the Pacific in such a vast way. And that said, you know, um, Patrick Smelly's made some good points, and he does reference Helen Clark's. Uh, doctrine about the benign strategic environment, and it all depends, I guess, on your view of what strategic is. But but I always thought Helen Clark said headed us down the wrong path uh, with foreign policy, uh, and and the Ardern government kind of continued that, but but made a uh, a joke of uh, our foreign policy when we had a a foreign minister who almost never left the country, and when she did, was a, a marked embarrassment. Whenever she tipped up somewhere, that, that was odd. Can I yeah. um, just speaking of traditional allies and speaking to what Olivia said? That was then, Olivia. Second World War was then, long time ago. Now you've got a United States that is prepared to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian young men in a meat grinder machine. Mm. You've got you've got um, a, a a country that's prepared to blow up the main industrialized sort of energy supply for their number one ally and destroy their economy. And so it goes on. So, okay, maybe back when my father was fighting in the war in the Pacific, that was then. But, you know, how That's benign you is that? with a Democratic president. How, yeah. I mean, I the guy can't even string a word together. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously a different – these are different – Relationships now, surely. Yeah, time's always changing, right? And that's why we have to adapt. And I really object to this claim, mostly from the left, you know, with all due respect, Matt. Um, no I, respect, I, Yeah, no, but, I mean, that, this is, you know, adherence. Helen Clark's the worst at it, talking about we need to have an independent foreign policy. And when you actually look at what they're actually meaning by an independent foreign policy, it seems to me that means acceding to uh, the whims of China or Iran or various other nefarious states out there Mm. that have no adherence to democracy, civil rights, or anything like that. And and we we have to head down this path. And again, I go back to Fiji. Frank Bainimarama decided he would would, uh, reject uh, his traditional allies in the Commonwealth 
and embrace an independent foreign policy. And what that meant is is that Fiji ended up being a a proxy for China uh, and for India and various other uh, countries out there with appalling human rights records. And that's what independent foreign policy generally looks like. And I'm not sure we want to be friends with the mullahs in Iran or the dictators in China. Do we want to be friends with anyone? Do we want to be friends with anyone these days? I think you do need to be friends, especially when you're only 5 million people at the bottom of the world that has a propensity to produce vast quantities of food. Now, you might not think that, um, that this is important, but it is. Anyone else got anything to say about this before yeah. we move on to that other? If I can, piece? I know you've got some others. And look, it's very bored. And may I say, this would be good if the whole country had discussions like this. I mean, Absolutely. 100% now, agree. Um, just quickly as I can, because I realize we, you just call the shots, Paul, because we want to move on to other topics. I realize that I, my memory is not so good, so I had to write down a, a few things here. Um, I start with uh, traditional allies. I have a different view. And I've never considered that our allies, they may be traditional, but they've been allies in brutality and imperialism. I mean, that that's with Australia, that's with the United States, and that's with Britain. So if you started with the First World War, okay, there's one war, which I don't, we shouldn't have been in, and if, if you had values. Secondly, even come to the Second World War, yes, the United States were involved with that, of course, and uh, in terms of the, the war in the Pacific. So was China. They lost 7 million people. They were invaded in 31 when the Japanese first invaded Manchuria, then in 37, then wreaked havoc. Nobody did anything for them. And then in our own area of the Pacific, you want traditional allies. I don't want to be allied to them uh, with their military uh, plans. I want independent foreign policy. The war in Indochina, un- totally unnecessary, totally a war crime. Five million people lie dead across Indochina let alone with the French before that, trying to hang on to their colony. Indonesia, um, 1965, up to a million people slaughtered. And we were on the side of our traditional allies for that, and in many, many, many situations. I've been proud when we haven't been on the side of our traditional allies, which I don't call them that, but that's what we call. I don't see the value in that. Now, I'm not against having a good defence force. What I want is what do we use it for? What do we do it with? And on the China thing... Um, you can criticize a whole range of countries. You don't have to go to war with them. A base in the in the Pacific, the bases in the Pacific, uh, 400 of the United States, which is in the article I also sent from uh, Don Brash and Helen Clark. They're quite correctly. Japan, uh, South Korea, the Philippines, Marshall Island. If you want countries that are bought, try the aid budget. I was the minister for aid too, but try the aid budget of the United States if you want to know how to buy countries all around the world and get their vote. So, look, I think there's probably, you've got the general drift, um, Cam said, yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we better hope for another Trump presidency then because we've got the benefit of seeing how he acts as president. One thing was extremely clear from his example, and that is he is very, very cautious about foreign entanglements and wars. He was a strategic dove, uh, not a gung-ho war hawk. Um, well, and his his problem with China was uh, with trade. I mean, he, the last thing he would want is a war with them. The and you'd think Trump the last is, thing that China would want was a war too, because there goes the trade, there goes the business. It really doesn't. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the thing with Trump is that you can only uh, be dovish like that and talk sternly if you've got a big stick that you can wield. 
right? Because same with same with Switzerland, right? Which is has been independent and uh, not aligned uh, for centuries, but they've got a big stick. That's why the Germans never invaded Switzerland. They invaded every other country in Europe, but they never invaded Switzerland. Probably because they didn't want their gold to be stolen, but um, that that already stole the stolen gold stolen again. They probably didn't want that. But I know that the generals uh, of the Wehrmacht met the generals of the Swiss Army, and they said, "Well, you know, you've got an army of this many people. Uh, you've got a population of this many people. We can put an army across the borders that's bigger than your uh, your entire population. How do you respond to that?" And the the Swiss general said. Um, you know, well, every citizen would fire three times. Guess what? The Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht did not invade Switzerland because they had a big stick. They had a well-armed civilian population that would mobilise to defend their own land. The American big stick is not the big stick it used to be, though, to be fair. No, that's right, but they can still stuff you up pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the thing. Um, I- I'm not saying that they're perfect, they're far from perfect. I mean, my my uh, father-in-law fought in Vietnam my, uh, and was poisoned by the New Zealand government with Agent mm. Orange, right? Yeah. So uh, my my uh, great-grandfather fought at Gallipoli, right? And so there's terrible things that are done in war, and it's very important to try and avoid war, but you can avoid war through you – know, there's, a, there's a saying, it sounds trite, but peace – is occurs when you have superior firepower. Okay, um, we'll jump. Good to, diplomacy helps. Jump to the Middle East in just a moment, but there's another article I think that we want to get out of the way to talk about that Matt has, I'm sure, an interest in because it's Kiwi Bank, and wasn't it Jim Anderton who kind of brought us Kiwi Bank? I mean, we already used to have the Post Office Bank. I it was my first job, <laughs> um, way back in the day, clearing up all the. The stuff after the bank closed, but um, but Kiwi Bank partial privatization of Kiwi Bank, and it seems reporting that I'm looking at from the Herald that the the, the NZX are interested. They think it's, it's yes, and better nibbling away at the Kiwi Bank because for um, investors too, it's uh, a bank which a lot of people got their eyes on. But it'd be quite good to have its customer base, uh, its uh, ability to service across the country, and so forth. But the concept for the bank came not just for a Kiwi bank owned by New Zealanders, but a publicly owned bank. Yeah. Because you can have a bank in private hands and pretty soon it goes into the smaller hands and we know that what happens. Uh, mum, there was a big play about mum and dad investors, which is what's happening at the moment. Oh, let's sell it for mum and dad investors. Let's get the capital we need. The capital can come. Perhaps we haven't got time today to go into capital sources. There's other capital forces for um, building the Kiwi Bank, if you've got the uh, reason to do it. Now, why we pushed it so hard is one, yes, the four biggest banks, and they're still in the in the market, uh, just had a monopoly on everything. And New Zealanders as a whole were fed up with it. So there was a very big reservoir of support for having a bank that was, uh, pub- that was New Zealand owned, but publicly owned as well. The other point about the publicly owned bank in our philosophy was that it was an instrument for government to take part in development. And I know people say, don't have private, you only use private funds, you only use private money that develops. New Zealand as a very small, vulnerable country with a long uh, island, a long way to traverse, 
use public money, use public banking, use public loans to build the infrastructure of New Zealand. Australia did the same with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Because when the government has it, it's not just a bank uh, in terms of the public uh, banking. Uh, it's also can be part of a whole development strategy um, in, inside an economy. So a government has a lot of economic levers at its disposal. And on the question of capitalization, well, one of the things we asked for, one of the things we made a mistake with was uh, we set it up. Labor Party opposed it. There were 16 votes in cabinet. Uh, to our four of the alliance, and Labor said we don't want it. That's the end of. There's no more role for public banking, but their branches mobilised and gave them hell. They they backed off because it was so popular. And then the next thing I know you've had Rodney on this program. Rodney Hyde was every day jumping up and down saying it'll fail. We'll be bailing it out in three years because the business case was so good. It was so well worked out. Uh, it paid its way and paid back to, back to the government. People streamed into the Kiwi Bank. Yes, it's undercapitalized. What we made a mistake politically was to let Michael Cullen uh, be the only person in charge. Michael was good. Michael was in the end. He 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 said I was wrong. I was wrong. I was right. wrong. <laughs> but we didn't develop it as we wanted it into both the development bank as mm. well. So the, the capitalization is a big issue, but privatization is not the not the the answer. Though they did go woke, isn't they it? went it's they a... went horribly woke. Well, then, well, that doesn't generally affect people's banking, but uh, you know it, what Matt, Matt says is correct. It, you know the idea, the concept was admirable. Uh, the execution was okay. It's what's happened since, and governments, sadly, all around the world, not just in New Zealand, but New Zealand's particularly bad at it as well. Are poor managers of uh, state assets, and they haven't injected capital uh, at the necessary levels uh, as an owner that they should have. Kiwi Bank is a flea compared to all of the others. And even the, the talk of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in capital uh, to be poured in there, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that listing it, and Matt, you're probably falling off your seat now that I'm saying this, uh, being, being someone who usually believes in the market, uh, correcting this, but I'm not sure uh, that uh, listing this or partially listing this will will end up with a good result. Um, we only need to look at what uh, John Key did with the power companies, yeah, um, uh, and any number of other examples uh, in New Zealand where we've privatised something uh, and it's made a lot of money for people that are other than New Zealanders. Telecoms, another example of that, which of course is now Spark. Um, you know, yeah. so I think go down the list. Yeah, yeah, I think perhaps the safest way to avail themselves of capital and still retain ownership would be perhaps a suggestion that the super fund, uh, not sure about ACC, but the super fund, it could be held in there and ring fenced and unable to be sold uh, out uh, out there, and the super fund can then go and get the capital for the bank. Uh, and, of course, the Superfund could, of course, help that by moving all of their accounts straight into Kiwi Bank straight away. And actually, another that's one thing you mentioned. Westpac does all the government banking. Yeah. In fact, one of my family worked for them. Mm. Uh, like me saying. Does anybody here have a Kiwi Bank account? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. Sorry. <laughs> all right. No, I do. I find it very useful, but... 
I never speak to anybody at the bank. I have no need to speak to anybody at the bank. Uh, I'd never go to a branch. I have no need to go to a branch. That's a, a moribund business model, and um, I think they just need to, to you know, make some changes. But again, it the, requires capital and technology. And the that's Young the New Zealander one. of the Year kind of put me off. I got to yeah. say. Anyway, let's move on to this story. Oh, sorry, um, Olivia. Anything to say about Kiwi Bank? No, no, banking is not my wheelhouse. I'm afraid. Okay. Spending right. money, I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, same. Making totally. <laughs> All right, uh, and a watched bank account never fills up either. I've noticed, like mm. watching the jug, waiting for it, for it to boil. Okay, let's get on to the story. Houthi rebels sentenced 13 people to be stoned to death for homosexuality while the world is busy watching the Iran-backed group's Red Sea attacks in support of Gaza. I'm reading from the Daily Mail. Co. NZ. Okay. I think, uh, sorry, UK. I think we talked about the Houthis, Matt, when you were on earlier in the week. So, um, Olivia, what do you got to say about this? It's pretty. Well, I do have something to headline. say about this uh, awful headline. I mean, you know, to, to stone people to death for homosexuality happens in too many Muslim cat countries today. Um, but, you know, my point is that the Houthi rebels are not fighting for Palestine. We get this trope. Every time um, Osama bin Laden's famous November 2002 letter to Americans um, to justify the World Trade Center attacks uh, also said he did this for Palestine, um, um, amongst other reasons. But the Houthis, it, it's just a trope. Um, they, they do it because they want Sharia law and they've just sentenced to death, you know, by stoning, which is brutal. You know, 13 people suspected of homosexuality. So I don't know, maybe maybe they were just holding hands or something. Um, the I view the Houthis as barbarous pirates, uh, no better than the Barbary pirates of old, who murdered and pillaged all shipping on the high seas, you know, during the 18th century until Thomas Jefferson put a stop to them. Um, as one of his first acts as president. Um, if the Barbary pirates were still operating today, they too would be claiming that they were really doing this for, you know, freedom in Palestine. And I say humbug. Um, they're doing this for the right to violently carry out Sharia law, which means killing homosexuals and any, anyone else that they suspect of being un-Islamic. Um, so I mentioned, you know, Osama bin Laden made the same claim. I even heard uh, dear old Saddam Hussein um, when he was committing lots of sadomy all over Iraq, um, genocide, that he also used to like to say that he was doing what he does for the sake of Palestine. Um, and, you know, it's just a nonsense. They're fighting for Sharia law. And, you know, Saddam used to make that claim that he was, you know, acting for Palestine at the same time that he was genociding Kurds in northern Iraq and the Marsh Arabs of southern Mesopotamia, one of the oldest existent, uh, civilizations in existence. And um, many of those Marsh Arabs, of course, had to flee. A lot of them went to Iranian camps. A lot of them went to actually find a home in Israel as citizens. Um, and I would say, I would quote Christopher Hitchens back here, um, they're not doing this to free Palestine. Um, Christopher made the, at the time of the World Trade Center 
attacks. He said the people who destroyed the World Trade Center are used and use civilians as accessories are not fighting to free Gaza. They're fighting for the right to throw acid in the faces of unveiled women in Kabul and Karachi. Um, that's what they want. They want to be able to act as barbarically as they can. Um, and they want to be able to be uh, be seen to be fighting for something noble instead of the ignoble medieval Stone Age acts that they actually do commit. Um, well, I brought it up so yeah. last time with Paul, so I, I, I just see that uh, Levy's got a different viewpoint than I had. Uh, first of all, on the Daily Mail, I haven't, I haven't seen that, but I'd be very careful. Most of those reports, because the early reports that came out could be true. We have to have a look at it. But uh, the early reports that came out on what happened on October the 7th uh, with the attack on in, in, in Israel breaking out from the Gaza, um, so many of those stories were just fabricated by the Israeli Defence Force. So many of them proven to be just absolute fabrications of what happened. As for the, uh, the, the Yemen, it's had a very long and tragic history. It also was a British colony. The British were brutal. They won brutality. Go and have a look at some of the books on how the British ruled in those countries and what they did and what weapons they used against innocent people. Of course, they didn't stone people, though, did they? Well, 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 you know, you stone people to this. It's bad, of course, obviously horrible and and, and brutal and, and a crime. But so is dropping bombs and gas on them. And that's what the British RAF did in the Middle East to contain their control, including in Iraq. And on Saddam Hussein, as you remember with Saddam Hussein, is that he went into power in 1967 with the help of the United States, as they overthrew the Ba'ath Party before that. He was their man against Iran. And when he used poison gas, as he did, against the Kurds, where did he get it from? He got it from the United States and other European suppliers. Saddam was a Ba'athist it, himself. It, yes, yes. He he was one of their Ba'athists, as famously said about Somoza in Nicaragua. Uh, from President Roosevelt, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Yeah. I'm saying fell out when he didn't obey orders and got too big for his boots. And as for Osama bin Laden, well, he got his start in life in Afghanistan, funded by guess who? And didn't worry about the fact that he had these reactionary, I, don't know, I think it's reactionary, I think anything to do with um, I, with religious ideology, and Islam's not the only one that's got a, religion, got a reactionary side to it. There's plenty of others. And that includes what's happening in Palestine at the moment. The reactionary side of uh, of Judaism is running rampant uh, with their claims that you, with these people of this land, it's the land of Israel. So the what, in my opinion, why I brought it up last time, was that first of all the United Nations hasn't discussed this attack, which we've joined. We've now gone to war, as we did in the Ukraine. We're now at war with Russia. We're now at war with the Yemen. Uh, without any background, any thinking about what are the real issues, and the uns—I think they call Ansar Allah, given the name of Houthi—I think that one as one mm. group. They, they haven't just attacked like Barbary pirates anybody. They've been strategic. It's been those countries that have been um, trading and going to war, going to Israel, and they've said we're going to take them out. They haven't. Other well, countries. they attacked Russian ships as well. But, but well, they're not... attacking anybody who goes to the. Uh, they make a choice, and the bigger yeah. the bigger issue is the genocide in Gaza. There is no genocide in well, Gaza. There is no genocide in Gaza. I agree with Cam. The, the, Matt, the thing here is, you've said we've gone to war with Yemen. We haven't gone to war with Yemen, right? Yemen has its own government, and it's not the Houthi rebels, right? The Houthi rebels are not the government of Yemen, so we haven't gone to war with Yemen. 
And let's just put it in perspective here. This is the slogan of the Houthi movement, right? Just so we get it clear that yeah. what we're talking about here, right? Their, their flag has their slogan on it, and it is several lines. God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, to Israel. a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. They're a designated terrorist entity. That's right, but that, but that's that's who you're defending. People who say death no. to America, death to Israel, and a curse upon the Jews. No, what I'm, what I'm, my post to is a war in against Yemen. And we're, if I was, we're not at war if I was with in Yemen. I wouldn't make a fine distinction. Oh, New Zealand has only gone to war against some of the people of the Yemen. There happen to be a great number of the people in the Yemen. And, and the backwards and forwards, yes, I do know about what's been happening in the Yemen. I do know all the countries that have been involved. I do know why it's important to other countries, not because they, particularly Western countries, not because they are least bit concerned about the human rights of anybody in that country. It's because of a strategic position. That's why Britain was in Aden. That's why they held it. That's why they kept it a long way from the island of Britain. For goodness sake, why do we continue to defend these European countries and the United States so far from where they are? We talk of, we've joined NATO. As I mentioned before about Jacinda Ardern, Jacinda, one of the biggest criticisms I have of her, I obviously know her personally, was that she has put us right in the middle of the biggest and most aggressive military power that's ever existed, which is NATO. And we now are a cooperating member of NATO and taking part in their containment plans of China in the Pacific. So I think that's good, but I don't think there's been any debate on, do we get involved with this massive uh, war machine, which is NATO? Well, that again, um, you must be hanging out for another Trump presidency because he's always the one that wants to bring NATO into heel. That's true. I don't think I'll have any say in who becomes the a- other thing too about about this Yemen situation and the Houthi rebels is is it's overlooked and and it's been completely overlooked uh, in this discussion so far. Is that the Houthi rebels are Shia, and the rest of Yemen's population, the majority of them. A Sunni. Massive difference. The, I, don't the, I don't. I don't think that's correct. But I stand to be. I haven't gone. Well, well let's just have a look at the else. countries that are that are Shia Islamic countries, hmm. and the ones that are that are actually causing a lot of problems around the world. Right. We've got the Houthi rebels funded by Iran, another country that's Shia. Iran, Iran also funds Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, again. Uh, they're Shia. Uh, if you look at uh, at Hamas, Hamas is Shia, and they're sitting in Gaza, causing problems there. Uh, let's just you know, Hamas was the democratically elected government of Gaza, right? And when they attacked Israel, they actually declared war by doing so, absolutely, by crossing the border and killing uh, civilians. Uh, in in large numbers, the largest ever amount of Jews killed in a single day. No, we know that since the thing, right? So they so brought that, war down on the heads of their own children, and they still are doing it. They haven't yeah. released the hostages. But the point I'm making don't want to get too far that, into this. It, what, the know. point I'm making about this is that these conflicts are perpetrated by the finance from Iran, which is a Shia country. A massive Shia country. That well, is they also perpetrated by the the weaponry of the United States as well. So, okay, um, let's move along because we're running out of time. 
the clock is ticking. Can I just uh, can I just say one one final thing on that sure, to, to to Matt and that's Matt, your criticism of the West is pretty harsh over its uh, mistakes or bad allies and allies rise and fall, remember, and they can change. But your criticism is pretty harsh, um, yet you can never hold any of the Muslim countries up to be bastions of human rights. Well, I don't. Actually, that's not true. I don't uh, sort of categorise them as Muslim or, or Christian countries because uh, governments are hypocrites. Whether there's, I mean, the United States, God bless America. Well, they do. They they what's consider the themselves Muslim. What, what you get? What's the nations? biggest country in the world says God bless America? But okay, to different countries, they've got uh, they've got the Gulf states. They're, they're they're Muslim. You've got Pakistan. You've got Iran. You've got a whole range of countries with often different different policies and different outlooks. There has been a very big democratic movement in the Middle East. What is the country that spent time overthrowing it? Who overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953? The United States of America, and with the help of the British. That was a democratic country. They had elections. They were overthrown. Who overthrew the Ba'ath regime and allowed Saddam Hussein to come in? I don't say they were perfect. That, that's because it was an Islamic takeover internally in no. Iran in 79. No. Saddam Hussein was on the payroll of the CIA. Yeah, and that's in Iraq, and we're talking about uh, Iran. In, 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 no, it went from Iran. I mentioned. Yeah, I think he's uh, doing a tour of the Middle East. Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying interference in the Middle East. Yeah. Like, what was the setting up of Israel? It was a European colonial project, and the people who lived there, the Palestinians, were expendable. Now you say I've gone hard. I'm a harsh on. This is the history of. I think you mean Arabs. North American colonialism, of plundering the whole world and dispossessing people, including where we live in Australia, and settler colonies. And Israel was a settler colony. But the Balfour what... Declaration also created Syria and Jordan and, uh, and uh, you know, even some of the countries to the south, right? Yes, so in so, Transjordan, it was... Setting called... up of the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And... That's the thing. There was no Palestine. It was the Ottoman Empire. You call them Palestinians. I call them Arabs. We were actually originally talking about the Houthis. Okay, let's um, come back to uh, our country. And the um, and folks, you guys mainly are in Auckland. I'm in Wellington. AT is the Auckland thing. The mayor knew that that um, fuel tax was going to be cut, right? He knew that was Of course coming. he did. I mean, it was obvious for at least a year uh, that there was going to be a change of government, right? He He's known, he's got councillors, that are sitting on the council as well, people like Morris Williamson, who know that Simeon Brown was going to be the transport minister because yeah. Simeon Brown replaced him as the MP for Pekaranga, right? They're good mates. He would have been telling Wayne Brown, mate, you can't rely on that money, and, and nor should they rely on that money. That was an outrageous tax against Aucklanders, which, by the way, all of New Zealand paid for, even though the, the fuel excise levy was charged in Auckland. The majority of freight into New Zealand comes through Auckland's port. And so any transportation that included uh, trucks or anybody else, any other fuels, when they were paying that excise tax. They got tax. caught up in it, right? They got caught up in it, exactly. So it was iniquitous to start with. He should have always known that was going, but he blithely let Auckland Transport continue with these massive multi-million dollar projects. Why would he do and, that? He's a business guy, isn't he? Well, I've, I, you know, I voted for him and I've come to the conclusion I think he's a moron. 
Oh. Right? So here's the thing. He's let this organization carry on spending money that was always going to be cut. And worse than that, they're, they're running... I mean, the train system's rubbish anyway. Yeah, right? what's we, happening with the train system? I mean, we, we, they just lie to us because, you know, they closed down the trains on Monday and they said, oh, no, it's because it's hot and the tracks are hot and they, there's a risk. Well, four days in the week before that, the temperature was four or five degrees hotter than the Monday. So so what is it? Is it because it was hot or is it... Oh, that's but it's not even hot. No, there are railways in fifty degree heat in the world, like out the Gan, out in the <laughs> middle of Australia. That they, they seem to get by okay. Yeah. Well, if you, I've got to shock you. I, I think I agree to a lot of the things that Cam has said. The the thing particularly is the mock horror, as he said. You knew this was coming. Yeah. And Lawrence Williamson is very well informed. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you look and you and you, and you look at. You know, and sadly, these people are left wing and, and actually have a voice in the media. People like Simon Wilson at the Herald and Russell Brown are caterwauling about all of these projects being cancelled. Um, they never uttered a word when when Labor was in government because presumably agreed with everything, even though not a single millimetre of track was laid for the thing the tax was levied for, for in the first place. A, a, a railway line to the airport, which, by the way, everywhere in the world runs at a loss, right? So we've had this millions, hundreds of millions of dollars taken from Aucklanders, and what did AT do with that money? They built cycleways that no one uses. They restricted the size of the roads. They reduced the speed limits. They're not Auckland transport. They're Auckland mistransport. Well, I don't don't agree that the cycleways... Aren't useful. I think they are. But um, in the in the broader thing, here's an example, in my opinion, that we need a good public transport for a functioning city to help everybody, including business, taking its goods to the ports and elsewhere for people to get around. All of us who are in Auckland, I stay at home and work on my study, not just because of COVID, but because I can't get on easily on, onto the road. If I want to go take a train, which I do, if I can, uh, as you pointed out, they tell me it's not going. It's been not just this time, but other times. So here's a here's a crisis for bipartisanship across the parliament. Some of those members of parliament who are from Auckland need to start now doing some research, looking at all the opinions, what Cam has just put up, what other people have put up, and coming up uh, with solutions. Because the thing about the rail to the uh, airport is the thing that strikes every person who comes here from overseas. Yeah, they say, why the, the hell do you have that? Like it's yeah. the train to the airport. Yeah. yeah, but here's the thing, Matt, right? Why is Even if it solution... runs at a loss, you've got to why... have it. No, you don't. You just don't. <laughs> and in a city like Auckland, right, putting rail, rail has to go through Odahu. It has to. There's no other way, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's, why is rail the solution every time? A 19th century technology, why is that the solution every you time? You the Jetsons. You know, we've, get, we've got autonomous vehicles. We've got, um, you know, micro um, buses. You can do all sorts of things. You can create, create bus lane. The problem with rail is that when it breaks down, it breaks down catastrophically, even if it's in a small part of the, of the network. Um, a bus, if, if there's a block, if there's a crash on the road or something like that, right, a bus can go around it. You Why can are lefties so wedded to trains then? Bugger if I know. Oh, and why and why are we re- why are we re- uh, wedded to cycleways? You know, I gave up cycling when I got my driver's license, 
<laughs> grow the hell up. You know? Okay, that's Good a bit me. rough. I cycle. Good for you. Go and live in Amsterdam. For yeah. ten, you become a cyclist, I tell you. Indeed. Wonderful for amongst, your health as well. Amongst other things. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, but but the money spent, here's the other thing. Okay, it's been cut off and, and he's pulled the, the rug. He knew it was coming. But what was that money? We talked about trains. But what was that money actually spent on? Because it was a lot of money. It, was it worth it? No. You know, what's the result? I mean, we got Get Wellington moving. They spent a, a, a hell of a lot of money consulting. The only thing they put in is a um, pedestrian crossing set of traffic lights just before the airport, which well, actually they, on they, some what, mornings what, is chaotic. What Get Wellington moving meant was get the consultants uh, moving in their new Teslas. Yeah. And a few nights out with the mayor. Okay, well, we've got some some grounds for some agreement, but I'm sticking with going for trains. It'll be good to have a, <laughs> people with some expertise on about that. But, uh, well, some high-speed trains. So it's well, like 10, 19th century technology. Biggest technology now is these high-speed trains that China is one of the experts in. They, they had one go last week 480 miles an hour. Yeah, amazing. And you, I mean, you can't get around Europe without it's using a jet. The, no, that, that's as fast as a jet. I've just been in France. My, my brother in law is in France. I have to go and visit him. Train from Paris to where he is in Angoulême. Great. Amsterdam yeah. to Paris. Paris to Berlin. Uh, and in China, I've traveled on the, the trains in China. Just amazing. Indonesia now has fast high speed. This has come back to development in Indonesia. They're working with the Chinese, not against them. Chinese haven't taken over Indonesia, but they put a train in, I forget, from the capital to somewhere. Four hours now they can travel, which used to take them a day and a half. And one's coming in from Beijing down to Thailand. Of course, there's high speed, but across the Middle East as well. They've got more people. We've got we've got less people. I talked about this with Morris Williamson uh, last evening in The Crunch. He said, we have less people in New Zealand than live in Melbourne. We have less people that live in New Zealand than live they've in Sydney. They've got trains. They've right? got trains, they've got trains but they've got a population in, a, in an area that's smaller than Auckland, right? That is the population in New Zealand. They have uh, – you can, you can look at Singapore. You can look at Malaysia. You can look at Thailand. You can look at all of these – China. Every single one of those places have got – in Hong Kong – the MTR system there, they've got millions of people in a very small area, meaning economies of scale, and, and it's far preferable to use public transport. We don't have that. We have barely a million and a half living in Auckland, and we want these gold-plated boondoggles because every other country in the world's got them. It's a good look to have a nice train to go to the airport. It is a good public look. transport system just doesn't take money. It helps money because yeah. well, that's what I was thinking. in your transport system. But so they're not efficient. Hmm? They're not efficient. They can be efficient. They're not in New Zealand. Well, not if you're still running rail cars and units, you know, like we did back in the 50s. Well, you know uh, why you're still running units and rail cars in Wellington? Because the tunnels are too small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Oh, yeah. They, they, they no, can't I, upgrade the Johnsonville yeah. line because it's going to cost billions of dollars to bore bigger <clears> tunnels. <throat> And, and why does, it it, why does that even why does even that cost much so much? Well, that's the thing. We, we, it takes us. We spend a ridiculous amount of money on tiny little infra, infrastructure. A, a classic case is the extension of the northern busway uh, out to Otiha Valley. Right. It it took seven years. Uh, it cost millions and millions of dollars. 
Uh, it works. That busway, actually, don't get me wrong. I like busways. Yeah, I don't, don't like railways. Yeah. Right? In Auckland, busways work. Uh, rails don't, doesn't. If that had been built in China, it would have taken seven yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah. 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 But it took, it took years. And I know it took years because for that entire seven years, I drove past it every day. It's not the destination, it's the journey. Cam, you got to remember that. Well, okay. all they did, right? This was well, just just to put this in perspective, right? It's three kilometers long, the extension, yep. right? So they spent tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars, extending that, and all they did is succeed in moving the traffic jam every morning and every three night. Three k's up the road, yeah. Three yeah. k's up the road, closer to the city. That's all they. Did. They went from they built. There's two lanes um, at Silverdale. To Otiha, when you get when you get to Otiha, it changes from two lanes to five lanes, and three kilometers later, it goes back down to two lanes. Who's the moron that designed that? Bring them onto the program when you. Yeah, well, let's get them. Why we'll the stone hell? Stone them. We can what stone the them. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, live on air. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, a um, couple of um, we're, we're running out of time. A couple more topics quickly. Son of British Baron Alex Fox challenging Chloe Swarbrick for Green Party co-leadership. Okay, that's interesting. But should a guy even try to do this? Well, the, the, the Green Party constitution says that they have to have a male and a female co-leader. and it, But if you identify... Well, I mean, that's one way of that. getting around it. I mean, they're woke enough to be able to do that. Maybe Chloe's going to identify as a male. But, um, you know, I didn't think it was possible to get anybody more crazy than Chloe Swarbrook. But it appears there's somebody who is keen to prove the point that the Greens are crazy. And it's this guy in the UK who's a former Scottish Labour activist, uh, a son of a, of Lord George Folks of Cumnock. Cumnock, right? bloody. Uh, he, he was fined for a breach of the peace in Scotland and, and involved in numerous controversies both here and, and in New Zealand. And he wants to uh, lead the Green Party. I mean... Uh, from a from a political tragic's point of view, I said, let's let it happen. Come on, let mm. come on, let's let this happen, right? But but it it just shows that the talent pool for the Green Party is as shallow as a birdbath in summer. It's empty. Um, if you have to have male female, and you've got a current, f- who's the other leader at the moment? Marama Okay, so then Chloe. So. Something has to give, doesn't it? There's not enough males in the in the Green Party that would could get up across. Well, you the wouldn't line. stick your head up anyway, would you? Well, get a shot off. Well, they, they usually succumb to friendly fire. Okay. I've, got, I've got an opinion counter to Cam, but I don't, Olivia would realise. Uh, no, go, 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 Matt. No, go, go. Okay. Um, well, uh, the one thing for the Green Party is that it fosters debate, so we should all be happy with that. Even if this Cam comes up and says, "Well, it's crazy, it's mad." They make people debate. So they come up with the wealth tax. Um, a lot of people are against it. So it's not good. It's not good. They made people debate the tax right. issue, which we avoid. And it's seen as too hard. So people have got really strong opinions on it. They came up with something. We pulled apart, but they came up with it. And I find that with a whole range of issues, unlike a lot of the other parties, which if, if those of you had the misfortune to be in some of the bigger parties, as I have, I was in Labour for a long time, <laughs> I still suffer from it. It's deadly, deadly dull. Um, you attend a meeting, you're full of beans when you're 16 or 17 year age, and people are discussing the raffle. You have to have it. You have to have that. But when you come on to any type of d- discussion on how, what's going to happen to our country, it's finished. 
there were times of conferences when I remember the young Phil Goff with long hair and a leather jacket and calling for socialism and uh, getting thrown out almost. And and people were yelling and screaming. It was good. It was good. Um, there was debate. Now it's managed. I went to one last, I think I mentioned your program last time. I went to a, a conference yeah. because uh, as a kissing cousin to talk about some policy. It's totally stage managed. So back to the Greens, good on them. They, they, they bring things. As for Chloe, no, I actually... Obviously, I saw the program. I think she's quite right. Her analysis of what's happening in Palestine, I call it, which my father always called it. He was there in the Second World War. And um, she says what she feels and she thinks about her positions and she at least brings some debate into that sterile uh, atmosphere where people are just not eased often and give, give the safe answers. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yep. I, I'm not. David Seymour's been on your program, probably. Was, uh, Rodney's program and uh, ours last year, yeah, but Rodney's. When he met me one time, he called me New Zealand's leading communist, and I felt quite <laughs> flattered. But <laughs> uh, at least he put stuff up. I'm, I'm for that. You know. Yeah. No, I hear. I hear. Um, I have heard that um, Greens gatherings require a rat test and masking. Oh. <laughs> well, they, but aren't they all rats? I must. Got to take a test though to, to show it. Okay, so there's that. And is is this um, Mr. Folks, uh, Alex Folks? Is he actually here in the country? I didn't read, or is he still? Oh, I don't know. I don't think he's got a chance. A snowball's chance in hell. Um, back there in but... uh, in Comnock. Don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. I, I uh, kind of don't care, other than I want to see the argy bargy and, <laughs> and and enjoy the bloodletting that occurs when these sorts of leadership things happen. There's one last thing I want to get to. America. Yeah, we can get to America very quickly, and then I want to play a piece of audio and get your reaction. So, okay, America, Olivia, what do you think of the stories we've heard in the last day or so? There's the binder, there's the 95 million for Ukraine. There's Billion, the, um, billion. B- sorry, billion. Uh, there's uh, the Her report, which showed that Biden is losing his memory. Well, I mean, I, I've I'm lo- I've lost track on what they're sending to Ukraine. I mean, I just think that's obscene, um, and I can't wait for Trump to become president again and just cut all that stuff and end that war because it's not going to end at the moment. Although, as um, you know, Boris Johnson's pretty clear they're going to fight it to, down to the last Ukrainian, um, which is appalling. But what anyway, I thought it- was funny is the ex-Prime Minister of Mongolia after Putin's interview with Tucker Carlson presented a map of the Mongol Empire, which encompassed the majority of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Just as perfect sledging on that. So you want to talk about maps here? Have a look at this. Yeah, have a look at this one. But um, the big story for me is Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi released a Substack report that the CIA mm-hmm. under Obama initiated the Russia collusion hoax and Operation Crossfire Hurricane. And a binder exists, which well, they claim a binder exists, which lays out that the, um, that they asked the Five Eyes partners to spy on 26 associates of Trump starting in 2015. We knew Trump was surveilled. That was very, very obvious. And of course, the um, Michael Horowitz, the IG, his report confirmed that they had failed to follow FISA law. Um, 
you know, FISA being the um, Spain, the court, yeah, the the, 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 court, yeah, the yeah. FISA courts. Um, but also, there was no Russia collusion. That's been very clear for ages, thanks to the Mueller report, which you know everybody had to sit through for twenty three months just to find that Trump did not collude with Vladimir Putin in any kind of election um, interference. But it's looking like um, John Brennan, John Clapper, James Clapper, no relation, Barack Obama, sure as hell did. Um, the James, rep- James Clapper came to New Zealand several times to meet with um, uh, John Key and, and a number of other people in the National Party. So the former CIA director, John Brennan, helped whip up the plan and shared his targets to the intel organisations in the US, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Yes, yeah, he whipped part of to it. Schellenberger. Um, The development is significant considering the U.S. government claimed it was notified by other agencies that Trump was colluding with Russia, when in reality, the U.S. government masterminded the whole thing, according to the report. So for years, Donald Trump claimed that he was illegally spied on by the Obama administration. Um, And instead of investigating his claims, the mainstream media just acted like he was crazy. Um, so, they actually said he was crazy because he, he used the term wiretapping. Wiretapping. And they said no one does mean. that anymore. But they were, in, that, they were in on it, right? Every time there was a, a leak, it was, you know, oh, this is coming out in the in the information with Russia collusion, Russia, 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 Russia. The media were in on it. And now they're perplexed why nobody Absolutely. trusts them, right? Well, they all got Pulitzer Prizes, didn't they, at the New York Times right. for, yeah. for, for reporting a fake story. So, I mean, look, they invented a crime election interference from Russia, framed Donald Trump for it, dragged the special counsel investigation out right through the first half of his presidency, um, only to find him clean. They knew he was clean from the beginning because they invented the whole sham. I mean, talk about corruption. That's Obama for you. And, and what, about, what, wait now, on, what about New Zealand, one of the five eyes, possibly being one of the outsourced spying agencies on targeted people, you know, to do with yeah. Trump. I mean, well, what the hell what, are maybe, we doing doing that? Maybe that's why Tucker Carlson's coming down to Australia. Yeah. Um, what what it means is that they committed election interference, and they still they are we, we with need, all the um, lawfare they've got going on with Trump at the moment. Is pure election interference. I mean, none yeah, of these things seem totally. to stick. The people that bring these accusations against him are as corrupt as hell. But I bet you that that binder is in Trump's hands, and I bet you that was the reason for the raid on Mar-a-Lago last year. They were looking for that, right, because it's got raw data that incriminates them. It would prove the corruption of Barack Obama. And, um, Cam, remember when you and I were on that little tin pot show when this story broke? Phil Gifford. Oh, this one. I remember it well. Well, he wasn't on then, but I think it was the first one. But, I mean, we were saying this, that if Obama used the apparatus of state to spy on a competitor, a political competitor, then, I mean, that's a vile um, little slice of corruption right there, and he must be brought to task for it. But the Biden crime family was donkey deep in that back then, and they're still um, donkey deep in it. You know, I've got all these spurious uh, prosecutors, uh, one of which has has, uh, shamed herself by having a relationship with the special prosecutor that she appointed and is in severe uh, risk of... of, um, being going to uh, prison, in, in, well, going to prison. She might, she may well be impeached first. Uh, you you got the strange coincidence that every time there's a revelation about the Biden crime family business that comes out in the media, 
there's a new indictment uh, from you know a yeah. tame a tame Democrat prosecutor on spurious grounds. Uh, you know the 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 most like spurious one of hey. yeah, just, it's like it happens within seconds. And uh, you've got the case where you know the the most egregious ones is is the charges of election interference against Donald Trump. Uh, you know that was uh, trumped up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, him and Vlad were colluding. That was the claim. So you got Alvin Bragg in New York with the Stormy Daniels case, which is just ridiculous. You got Jack Smith in the documents case, and then you got Fannie William Willis in Fulton County, Georgia. You know, it's 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 just insane what's insane. going on. And the people who are complaining about inter- election interference the most are the ones that are doing it. Yep, they're the ones that are guilty of it. It's always really- the way. But spying on your opponents or people within your country and on foreign leaders and setting things up is not new. The uh, counterintelligence program under Nixon, uh, which uh, came out and... Uh, Took him out, though, didn't it? With he the got caught. Pentagon Papers, uh, showed the extensive spying of uh, Hoover set up, the whole network of everybody. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Angela Merkel, famously, was uh, Mitterrand. They were spied on by, by the United States, by their by, allies. By Barack Obama. And yes, yes. Well, they were tapping the phone. The greatest drone killer of all, America Bone. And in the United Nations, they all have to have their conversations in the toilets, but they're not safe either. Um, they got the bugs in the loose. They've got skiffs now. When New Zealand was uh, kicked out of the intelligence uh, sharing over the uh, question of nuclear weapons, uh, the Five Eyes kept operating and they reported not to did report to New Zealand prime ministers, but they were, I can tell you, as a minister, they were law unto themselves. Right. And, and kept, you know. How much of a law unto themselves? Well, they, they decide what uh, stuff they'll keep because it's sensitive and it can't be, and its other allies have it, and, you know, cabinet ministers don't get it because obviously, well, perhaps, perhaps they were right. Perhaps I was unsafe. I would hand it to the. the yeah, leaky. But then invade New Zealand. I don't know. But you have to make decisions. And um, in the case I mentioned in the news report, 65, New Zealand in the Five Eyes played a role in collecting intelligence of whose name should be handed over to the Indonesian military. Those people were killed. Wow. Okay. When when was that? 65. 65. And there's, some, there's a very good uh, documentary on it. There's some very good writings on it. Hmm. Okay, well, and and there's also I think um, a, a um, some sort of uh, security meeting uh, involving Russia and something to do with space that people were talking about too overnight. I think we've come up on time. I want to play this cut to you got to um, you got to go in the skiff to get that one, Paul. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the, they deliver them on the back of a truck usually, don't they? And then you fill, fill them up with rubbish. Is that is that what you're talking? <laughs> Not a, a skip. skip. That's a skip. Oh, that's a skip. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, security skip. A skip is so that they don't have to go and talk in the toilets anymore. And that's an acronym for something security. Something. Yeah, I it's can't like remember. it's like um, it's it's like Maxwell Smart's, uh, you know, cone, <laughs> the cone of silence. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was always that. There was always they were always like sort of in awkward positions underneath it. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, they were never comfortable. Okay, I want to play this quick clip to wrap up. Just have a listen to this. We actually fund ourselves and then work out what dividend is needed to pay. So um, we kind of work that it's a great business to be in central banking. Um, mm. Print money and people believe it. And um, and, um, and uh, touch wood. <laughs> That's yeah. not us yeah. laughing, right? That's not us laughing. No. That's, 
That's mm. the Reserve Bank officials and the politicians mm. giggling about fiat currency and how central banks just created out of thin air. Created mm. out of thin air in collusion with the other banks. How utterly cynical. Right. And they're just laughing. Ha uh-huh. ha. I mean, yeah. they, he. What and they Adrian believe Ord, it. Remember what he said, and they believe it. Yeah, but, they what believe Ad, it. but what Adrian Orr said right there was the quiet bit out loud. Sure was. And, and have we seen that in the media? Have we seen a report about that? It was that all over media? Twitter going viral. So <laughs> Yeah. They'll probably report it um, probably on Sunday uh, in two weeks' time. And how much was printed and <laughs> they believed it just in the last three years? Oh, it's more than the last three years. It's been well, going on. It's been going on for a good long time. They, they flooded yeah. the zone. They flooded Successive the zone. governments. I mean, the National Party printed money um, uh, on numerous occasions. Uh, you know, it's how they managed to keep the economy pumping along. But uh, it's it's a forlorn hope that it will keep on doing. You, otherwise, you end up like the United States, where they keep printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, and then, you know, wondering why the economy is not actually getting better. Yeah, that's why I always say there is no such thing as free market capitalism. There isn't. And, um, Matt, what do you make of the laughing there? Like, the, the it's derisive, isn't it? It's like, yeah, these morons. Cynical, if that's what they... Mm, very. He, he should be sacked for a comment like that. Like, mm. like, see you later. Don't come Monday. But all the goons laughed as well. Well, they did. Because they're all in on it. Hmm. The system is the problem. Because because people like Adrian Orr uh, exist whether there's a Labour government, a Labour-led government or a national-led government. The people, the civil servants, they remain. That's what Rob was talking to talking about at the beginning of the of the of the program. That the ministers, the, the ministers are getting information from the civil servants who were the same civil servants that were giving information to the previous government, and we wonder why nothing changes, because we don't actually clear them out when we have a change of government. We get this continuity uh, of the civil service and the advisors and everything else, uh, and we end up keep on doing the same things that keep getting us in trouble. And, and you know, I have to agree with Matt on that. I really do. And, and it's not often you'll you'll hear me say, I agree with Matt Robson, but there you go. It's a red letter moment, and there we are. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm sure he'll get over it, won't you, Matt? Yes, I saw you smoke. This is what I smoke when I get a free one. Oh, look at that. Oh, you and I better go have a have a catch up then and and smoke. So I've got um, that looks like a serious behind behind me. Just there, that's my that's my humidor, Matt. Ah, and I've got six hundred cigars in there. Six hundred. Can I come? <laughs> yeah, that many. I haven't got that many. Oh well, we found some common ground there too. Uncle who died of throat cancer? He left me all. <laughs> oh, <dear>. I, <laughs> I spin on that at the end. That's so ominous. You know that one cigar, according to Cam, is worth there's, a whole packet much, of cigarettes. Yeah, but there's as much nicotine in one cigar as there is in a packet of cigarettes, which all is right. why I smoke cigars because I want as much nicotine as I can in the shortest amount of time. Life's short. You've got to make the most of it. Okay. I want to thank uh, Matt Robson. Matt, thanks for coming on. I hope that was okay for you, a good experience for you. Yeah. Yep. Appreciate your insights. Good to see you again, Olivia. Good to see you too, Paul. Thank you. And uh, look forward to having you back uh, soon again. And Cam, as always. Pleasure. Love it. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio. Loving what you're hearing? 
Well, the establishment hates it. And right now, they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR. To ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love, make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.